You're listening to Carrie Lutz's Financial Survival Network, where you get valuable information you just can't find anywhere else. To thrive in today's trying times, you need the Financial Survival Network, now more than ever. Go to FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com and get your free newsletter and gift. Financial Survival Network, now more than ever. Welcome. You are listening to watching the Financial Survival Network. I'm Kerry Lutz. Today is October 4th, 2021. And what an October it's starting out to be. Evaporating trust in everything. Our good friend John Rabino is with us now, dollarcollapse.com. Again, any questions, comments, email us, kl at kerrylutz.com. So, John. <laughs> Everything is uh, going down the toilet here uh, at a rapid rate. Hey, Kerry. Yeah, lots of stuff are, are going wrong. I think the, um, you know, the theme that probably makes the most sense for um, putting all the stuff into context is a loss of trust, because so many things are happening now that um, that a growing number of people are either, either perceiving as dishonest or incompetence out there and you know the list is just growing and, and more and more people are losing faith in the big systems which is that you know that's been one of the things that was always supposed to happen as we drift into bankruptcy and financial crisis and now it looks like it's it's happening on a lot of different levels a buckminster fuller uh, foresaw everything that's happening now and uh he was the one that always said don't uh, try to change the system just leave the system right I didn't know he said that, but uh, he, he was a cool guy, Bucky Fuller. So, yeah, um, it, it's that's a reasonable way to approach this. Yeah, I think so. So when we look, uh, we had like another disclosure. They were like uh, similar to the disclosure from the uh, Panamanian law firm about the way the world's uh, wealthiest people avoid taxes and launder their money. Yeah, and th this was actually twice as big as the data dump that was the Panama Papers. And it, it includes a lot of, um, you know, obviously a lot of rich people hiding assets and, and avoiding taxes by using offshore accounts, but also a lot of political leaders around the world. So th this is going to reverberate because it's a lot of people who really shouldn't be stealing and, and shouldn't be hiding their income and their assets. And, and yet they're they're doing it. Um, and. Another interesting thing about this is that a lot of the places where they're doing it is kind of surprising. Like, the, you know, the U.S. and big parts of Europe are now tax havens for people from other places. And even South Dakota in the U.S. Yeah, turned into some yeah. kind of a big tax haven for some reason. Yeah. We, the the, uh, the governor, who I, I think is a, a really good candidate for vice president in the next go around, has some explaining to do. <laughs> She's going to well, have to. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you why it happened from a legal standpoint, because they passed a law about trusts. Like trusts are really cool things. And if you're interested in trusts, you could always email me. But uh, trusts are really interesting because they don't get registered with the government, except uh, certain cases they need a taxpayer ID number. The document itself doesn't get filed anywhere. It's totally private. And even the name, you have wide discretion picking a name. So all these things considered, eh, 
South Dakota, well, Delaware has been that kind of thing for many years. And uh, look where our president came from. So a lot more shoes to drop there because it's it's barely getting covered. And you wonder who is letting out all this info, who has access to it. And I wonder, uh, I wonder what politicians near and dear to our hearts have accounts uh, and trusts all over the world that we know nothing about. Interesting to see. Well, New York is deploying deploying the National Guard to replace 70,000 unvaccinated healthcare workers. This is madness. Well, this might be the biggest outrage of everything we talk about today. And that, that's saying something because um, there's a lot of outrageous things going on. But um, the story with New York is that um, basically New York's healthcare professionals spent a solid year unvaccinated and still treating people with COVID because the vaccinations weren't available for the first part of the pandemic. And now the government's coming back to them and saying, well, unless you get vaccinated, you're unsafe. So we're going to fire you. Uh, but think about this. If, if you spend a year in an ICU treating people with COVID and you have no immunity to COVID because it's a new disease, of course, you're going to get it, right? So most of these doctors and nurses and orderlies and everybody else um, probably have already had COVID. They probably have natural immunity, which is better than a vaccination. And yet the governor, the government of New York is still going to fire them if they refuse the vaccine. And that's going to create a huge shortage of healthcare professionals. And so now they're going to bring in, you know, people from the National Guard that uh, that have some healthcare experience in their background. Maybe they're retired or or they've moved on and they're, they're not registered anymore or whatever. But they're going to bring those people in to pick up the slack. And now how crazy is that? You know, these these the people they're firing already spent a solid year taking care of COVID patients. Um, and now they're going to be fired. So I, you know, that that just seems like the kind of thing that um, is going to create this huge groundswell of frustration and anger uh, because it's so clearly stupid and so clearly um, motivated by something beyond just the welfare of patients. Right. Uh, and probably what it is, is that um, natural immunity um, is being ignored by the uh, the governments of at least the U.S. and, and around the world also, uh, because you don't make any money off um, natural immunity if you're Big Pharma. And Big Pharma is funding this whole show from beginning to end. You know, they created these diseases. Um, then they created the... Um, by the way, does that sound a little bit familiar? Um, because you and I spend a lot of time in finance talking about how the Fed created all of our problems and then they come in and they're supposed to be the ones to fix the problems. The, you know, the arsonist sets the fire and then comes in and puts the fire out and wants to be the fire. Yeah. And, and, and now we've got big pharma kind of behaving the same way and they totally own the political system. And that's why nobody's paying any attention to natural immunity. You know, if you, uh, you take, Let's assume for a second, and it's a big assumption, that uh, these vaccines work. And then, you know, take the whatever, 120, 150 million people in the U.S. who've gotten vaccinated and then add in all the people who got COVID, survived and now have natural immunity. And you're way up there into the uh, the ranges of people who are immune to the disease um, that normally signify herd immunity. In other words, if 80% of the people one way or another have uh, antibodies, uh, that should be the end of the story. 
And and it's not, and it's not even being talked about by the, the guys in charge. So um, this is just a, this is a crazy story from beginning to end. Hey, and uh, if you saw that little uh, debate between uh, the head of uh, Health and Human Services and uh, Senator Rand Paul, it was definitely good for a few laughs and dealt exactly with what you're talking about. Uh, the idea that there's enough National Guards people, men, women, to actually take over for these 70,000 uh, workers is absurd because there is not. Uh, and especially ones that are qualified. Yes, they can pick up the garbage if they have to. They can do other stuff. But uh, as far as treating sick people, I don't think that's going to work. And uh, hey, uh, well, we won't mention the name of that certain health issue again, other than to say that their fact checker from Facebook is actually funded by a certain uh, big pharma lobby. Who would have thunk it, huh? Yeah, surprise, surprise. That was, uh, Carrie, you, you misstated, though. It's the independent fact checker oh, the independent. At, at Facebook, who is actually funded by the pharmaceutical industry, it turns out. Yeah, see, um, now we don't trust, well, not that we ever really trusted those guys, but now we absolutely should not be trusting them. Anybody who still believes fact checking that comes from an entity like Facebook's in-house independent fact-checking organization is is just operating with their own agenda you know you're consciously ignoring facts um because they don't suit your preconceptions and that that i think is well in an ideal world that would be a shrinking number of people but um in the u.s right now it seems like it's a growing number of people as opinions harden on both sides crazy craziness Hey, so uh, there's a Marine who spoke out, criticized the Afghan chaos. They threw him in the brig. Uh, now $2.2 million has been raised for him to uh, assist in his defense. Uh, you know, it's pretty outrageous, but you're not supposed to criticize the commander in chief, no matter how badly he screws up. Well, he, he knew that and he consciously put his career and maybe his life on the line in order to speak out. So you got to respect the guy for that because he wasn't that far from a, a really nice, cushy military pension. You know, he had like three more years before he was going to be able to retire uh, with a lifetime income. Uh, and and he chose to speak out, which means, this you know, this matters to him and and feels like he's right, right? <laughs> you know, that, uh, that this was a, uh, you know, by ending the Afghan war the way we did, rather than 19 years ago, like we should have, or this year, but correctly, um, he, the, the government is basically saying that all the people that died, all the people that devoted their lives to that occupation, um, did it Pointlessly, you know, there was no reason for them to have done it because we're right back where we started. And uh, and yeah, you know, we really should have gone in there, tried to get um, Osama bin Laden. And when he went to Pakistan, we should have pulled out of Afghanistan. So it would have been a one year thing and over. And the uh, the Taliban would have been in charge after that, just as they are now. You know, so it would, it would have been, been just like it is now. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be overthrown at some point. It's silly to think they wouldn't have been. Now it'll be a lot longer because they got all that fancy American military equipment. But they would have been overthrown because everybody despised them. They ruled from fear. There was a viable uh, resistance. They had 
right before 9-11, they had killed off the main head of that resistance, uh, the main warlord. And that's what actually paved the way for 9-11. But nah, nobody looks at history. But uh, you know what? You don't have to worry because you're probably not going to be celebrating Christmas this year anyway if one Dr. Fraudchi has his way, huh? Don't just survive. Thrive. The Financial Survival Network. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. At Silver One's Candelaria Mine Project in Nevada, there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver, which Silver One is developing and advancing. The company's Phoenix Silver Project, located within the Arizona Silver Belt, is an early stage exploration project on which native silver vein fragments have been discovered near surface. One grab sample assayed an astounding 14,688 ounces per ton. Yes, that's right, ounces, not grams. Silver One has tremendous exploration potential, is extremely leveraged to the price of silver, and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to silverone.com. That's silverone.com. This is the Financial Survival Network, the information you need to thrive now more than ever. Yeah, so, so um, the, the guy in charge of our, um, our pandemic response is now saying um, that Christmas might not be allowed by the government. You know, they, they, they might very possibly come out with rules that say nobody more, you know, no more than five people can celebrate Christmas in the same place. Um, in other words, um, taking a page from Australia's book, where they, they'll break down your door. They just, uh, this, this isn't on the list that you and I talked about beforehand, but did you see the Australia story about um, somebody tried to sneak a trunk load of Kentucky fried chicken into a neighborhood and they caught him and, and he went to jail for it because that was against the rules because that would imply that there was some large gathering of people that was illegal. <laughs> so you can go to jail for smuggling fast food now in Australia, but we're, we're not all that far from that, at least in some of the, the really aggressive States, you know, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised at all to see California come up with a rule like that. Yeah, no uh, amazing KFC for you. No yeah. KFC for you. Oh my God. Hey, well, Hey, so uh, so treasuries uh, going to get routed here, you think? That's actually a very big deal. You know, that um, ties into trust to an extent um, in the sense that when interest rates go up, what that's what that is, is market participants saying, now nah, we, we need a higher interest rate, a higher return before we will lend money to you. And that's starting to happen in the treasury bond market, where the, um, the yields on US government debt are starting to rise in response to inflation. So um, market participants are basically saying, nah, you know, we don't want this stream of dollars that comes from these bonds unless we get a much bigger stream of dollars because the dollar is depreciating at an accelerating rate uh, and we need to be compensated accordingly. So if that continues, in other words, if interest rates go up in the U.S., that has a disproportionate impact on the emerging markets where they borrowed a lot of dollars 
in order to fund either government operations or infrastructure or, um, you know, or corporations did it or, you know, lots of people in, in some place like Brazil borrows U.S. dollars on the assumption that the dollar is going to go down in value or its interest rates are going to stay very low. Uh, and that's going to make the transaction profitable. Well, if interest rates go up on U.S. government debt or on U.S. debt in general, um, and anybody in Brazil has to roll over their dollar denominated debt, that means they have to do it at a higher interest rate. In other words, they have to pay more in order to borrow. And that can blow a lot of these guys out of the water. You know, a lot of these countries are, um, they're already hurting because of um, the instability of the global financial markets of the last few years, along with the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And now to have their dollar denominated debt blow up on them might be the last straw for a lot of, you know, you might see some more Venezuelas emerge um, among emerging markets where, the, you know, the system just starts to spin out of control there and their currencies just collapse, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this could be, one of the catalysts, and it has been on the list of catalysts that might blow up the system for quite a while now. And an emerging markets crisis um, could be one of those things that at least contributes and, and maybe directly causes a broader financial crisis. So watch that and watch interest rates and then see how it impacts uh, on emerging markets. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. This could be uh, could be at another black swan. Certainly the energy prices are huge black swan that's uh, been underappreciated, particularly rising, escalating natural gas prices. Uh, I haven't looked at it uh, in a couple of hours, but it was hovering again at close to uh, close to six bucks uh, per million BTUs, which uh, everything runs on that gas now. But uh, this will be interesting to see, uh, you know, if we have a bad winter as well in the United States, we could be having similar problems here. Because uh, you mentioned in Germany, uh, they're out of coal and they're out of electric. And if they have a cold winter, can't even imagine what it's going to be like, John. Well, see, that's what's so scary about the, this part of the story is that all of these energy crisis kinds of things that are happening are happening while the weather is still pretty nice. <laughs> you know, let, let us um, have a colder than usual winter over the next four months. And these guys who are already kind of paralyzed by shortages and and uh, other kinds of problems um, might have a lot more trouble than they have now. And it's already pretty troublesome. You know, uh, speaking of the National Guard, <laughs> the uh, um, the gas stations in Britain are running out of gas because they don't have enough drivers to deliver the gas. So they're bringing in the military to drive those trucks uh, so that they don't have massive gas lines there. Again, another 1970s um, analogy there where uh, we had that in the 1970s and it was part of what destabilized the financial system. And now we're seeing it again and it might be spreading. You know, a coal fired plant closes in Germany. Um, gas stations run out of gas in Britain. It goes on and on. Uh, there, are, there are similar problems percolating around the world. And it won't take that much for them to kind of coalesce into one gigantic energy crisis rather than a bunch of small localized ones. Yep. I'm totally inclined to agree with you. This thing is out of control. And uh, the intention of uh, weaning us over from one energy source to another is all well and good in theory. But uh, it's always uh, the law of intended con 
unintended consequences that does you in. And that's clearly, clearly what is happening here, right? Well, in, in, in normal times, in other words, if the, um, the overall economy was healthy and we were seeing these kinds of energy things perk up, uh, pop up, you'd think of it as just the growing pains of a transition. In other words, we were going to go to alternative energy sources and renewables, et cetera, et cetera, um, over the next 20 or 30 years. That's pretty much baked into the cake. And uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to see hiccups along the way because it's a big transition. So if... Um, if we were in pretty good shape otherwise, and we saw this stuff, we'd go, oh, all right, you know, this, this is not great, but we'll get through it. But we're in terrible shape otherwise. So these things can, can also be the kind of dominoes that start to fall. You know, if you have a, an energy crisis where uh, the cost of oil or gas or even coal <laughs> spike, yeah. and that bankrupts a lot of different players out there and, and causes them to default on their debt and causes their banks to run into trouble and causes the governments of the world to have to bail out those banks. You know, you, you get the, uh, the potential for one of those cascades of uh, problems that turn into something much, much bigger than the original crisis. Uh, so energy could be one of those things. And, you know, as, as we talked about, it's still nice out. <laughs> you know, there are all these problems that are happening during good weather. So who knows what happens when it's below zero and there's a snowstorm. Hey, John, between energy and food, this is going to be bleh, unbelievable unbelievably bad. Uh, I always say the it's been saying about energy and food, it's a uh, triple whammy with energy. You got government policies that discourage production of hydrocarbons. At the same time, you have government policies that encourage economic growth, which result in higher consumption of hydrocarbons. And then to top it all off, you got loss of purchasing power of the dollar. That is a triple whammy that could lead to massively higher prices. And the only way it doesn't is if we have a major disruption, global disruption, uh, major systemic depressionary, depressionary, deflationary depression. That's the only way this thing doesn't happen this way. And it's the same thing with food. We got larger population. We have government policies in the U.S. that discourage farmers from producing food that pay them not to produce. And then we've got a currency unit that is diminishing in, uh, in purchasing power. Combine all them, this is prescription for a global disaster. Um, yeah, it is. And, and energy and food are actually um, more closely related than you might think, because natural gas, the thing that's really spiking right now, is used to make synthetic fertilizer. And the fact that natural gas is spiking means there's a potential shortage of fertilizer out there, which impacts food production from a different direction, you know, from all the other problems with the supply chain and everything for food. Uh, now you've got potentially a shortage of, of fertilizer, which means uh, a big cutback in food production. Now, I, I don't remember who it is that's that's got to cull hogs because they, they can't come up with enough food to feed their pigs, I think. And so somebody's getting ready to kill a whole bunch of pigs before it, it was normally time to take them to slaughter because of these supply disruptions. So, so yeah, we're seeing a lot of things that will impact food prices 
going forward. Oh, yes. And that's the food, you know, rising food prices are what caused um, all the civil unrest, which led to the um, uh, spring. Yeah, yes, the Arab Spring. Yeah, all, all the uh, overthrowing of governments that happened over the last few years in the Middle East uh, began with food shortages. So, which makes sense, right? Because uh, if weird things are going on out there, but you've got enough to eat, you tend to let it pass over you. But as soon as you don't have enough to eat, and you, you know, your kids don't have enough to eat, uh, then you're going to be highly likely to take some kind of action to bring about some kind of change. Uh, and to the extent that food shortages are going to be prevalent in this coming cold winter when there might be energy shortages at the same time. Um, who knows what happens? It, it, it could be one of those really messy moments in, uh, in history when a lot of things come together to lead a lot of people out into the streets who normally wouldn't have been out there. Hey, one other thing going way up in price. Are you ready for this one? Water. Because 50% of the cost of delivering water to your home is energy. All right. And if they need to start desalinizing more water because we have water shortages all over the West, and that's the only way you can satisfy that demand, desalinized water is even higher in energy usage and prices will go even higher. So plus they have to be built, they're capital intensive, we don't have them. I think there's one or two in California, a couple of other places in the country, not enough water. And that's the quadruple whammy of uh, higher CapEx to deliver that water. I don't mean to be the doom and gloomer, there's still a lot of things to be uh, optimistic about, but all these factors are converging. Hey, Evergrande driving up China gold demand, and India's gold imports surging. Haven't seen this in a while. All things, because I'll tell you, when I went to China, everybody was investing in real estate because they were like 20 years behind us that believed real estate prices always go up. Now there's they're finding out otherwise. There's an amazing chart, which uh, stopped me if we already talked about this in, in the last time we uh, did a show, but um, it, it shows the percentage of household wealth that's attributed to real estate. And in the US, it's like 30%, which is a, a big number and not a surprise because we're a you know house-centric culture. But in China, it's like 75%. They put all their money into real estate. And now they've got a gigantic real estate developer going bust, um, which is taking down a lot of the other big real estate developers. So I, I think the Chinese government, you know, they're, they're trying not to bail out Evergrande right now, but I think it, it could get to the point where they have to bail out their whole real estate sector, oh, yeah. which is, uh, that's probably an order of magnitude uh, as a percentage of GDP, bigger than the bailouts we did after the great recession of the big banks. So uh, this could be yet another thing that, uh, that that has just gotten started. You know, the Evergrande thing is um, is nowhere near its completion because there are so many other moving parts to the story, and some of them are really, you know, very scary. And um, China, second biggest economy in the world, uh, whatever happens there matters to everybody else. Absolutely. And uh, their real estate market's larger than the United States $60 trillion sector, uh, maybe as large. I thought the U.S. $45 trillion. I could be wrong about that. But uh, the other thing is that the quality of the structures being built in China, they call them tofu buildings, and they just fall apart rapidly. 
the quality is really, really bad. There's a couple of guys on motorcycles driving around China, exploring the country, and they show buildings built like three, four years before that are like in shambles. And nobody's in them either, but everybody's buying them. They can't get decent rents there because they have all this excess supply. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Anyway, that is it for today. Make sure you go over to dollarcollapse.com. Sign up for John's newsletter. Same same goes for FSN. Sign up for our newsletter. John, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. See you, Gary. Thanks for listening to Carrie Lutz's Financial Survival Network, your solution to today's trying times. For the latest, go to FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com. Financial Survival Network, now more than ever.